0: Hi, this is Len Epp, co-founder of LeanPub and host of the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. In this special episode of the podcast, I had the privilege of interviewing Don Tapscott, who is the author of a number of New York Times best-selling books and a globally recognized expert on the intersection of technology and business, who has also been writing in the past couple of years about how business and technology affect our politics in fundamental ways. The interview was part of the Chancellor's Lecture Series at Trent University in the Canadian province of Ontario and was recorded before our live audience on Friday, November 16th. The subject of our discussion was... Towards a new social contract for the digital age. In the interview, Don talks about the nature and origins of the crisis of legitimacy he sees in our democracies today. We talk about Donald Trump and fake news, the role technology plays in all this, how technology and politics and climate change are going to be fundamentally changing the nature of our post World War II social contract, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy the interview.
1: If we're ready, I'll take a moment, first of all, to to welcome you all, to thank you for coming out on a day when you might preferably have been making snowmen or laying down the foundation for a. Uh, Hockey Rinker doing something else typically Canadian. I would like to think that this discussion is also typically Canadian in that Canada has now and in some ways always has been a a leader in innovative thinking. And our ability to adapt to conventions that we have brought from Europe and those that we have developed since are part of our hallmark. And one of those is the way we're going ahead with this second media revolution. To adapt those things we've inherited, like social contracts, to that new media. And that is our topic today. So if you let me quickly introduce our two guests, and we will allow them then to engage in the conversation they've come prepared for. On my far left is Mr. Don Tapscott. We can call him Dr. Tapscott if we like. He's got three the degrees. Okay. <laughs> He's also a great rock star here. I haven't heard the band, but I'm um, And uh, he is the author of 16 books on a wide range of topics, including one of the most important books on no current media, and that's Wikonomics, which has been translated in over 25 languages, no has been a bestseller for over a decade now, and recently the Blockchain Revolution. He also has a TED Talk, like a real TED Talk, not those fake TED Talks that you can find all over the place, with approaching three, two, two, (sighs) I got to do my homework. Well, the one I looked at has almost three and a half million hits. What's the other one got? Uh, I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> a lot. You, you know this too, and right? you, know, you don't check every morning to see your, what your popularity is. What a guy! So modest. So modest. <laughs> no, so it, and it, it's wonderful to know that. One of Trent's, no, early graduates, one of our real foundational alum, has that kind of of, of world outreach. But uh, we have another person who's kind of related to Trent in that his twin brother has been wandering our halls now for a decade and more. Glenn Epp, who has a PhD in English from Bordeaux College in Oxford, was for a while an investment banker and decided he would try his hand at innovative publishing so he was a co-founder of Lean Pump, an extraordinarily innovative way of bringing texts to a wider public uh, an author can register with leanpub you know they can write their book with their audience engaging with them their readers there for the whole ride and when it comes time to sell it of the purchase price or more, the minimum is 80, goes to the author, which is in itself an extraordinary achievement. And if you want to, you can go online and you can read Len's satirical novel in which he takes five Canadian academics of a card, a poet, a professor of English, Graduate student, researcher, the usual gang. And they go across Canada looking for the Canadian identity. And it's an extraordinary piece of work and a very fine example of what the current approach to marketing fiction is. So, with that, I give you Glenn uh, Epp and Don Tapscott and what will be, I'm sure, an extraordinary conversation.
0: Thank you for coming. Um, I'd like to begin by saying that Don is um, typically represented, as he ought to be, as an expert and world leader in thinking about technology and business and the economy, but he also writes about politics. And so I'd like to talk to him today as Don Tapscott, the political theorist. And my first question is, um, could you talk a little bit about the crisis of legitimacy that you see us having in our democracies today?
2: Okay. Um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's it's get easy, into easy it. Easy to start with. <laughs>
2: Um, let me just say a couple of things about the introduction. Um, Lynn, eighty eighty percent goes to the author. Do you know that as a best-selling author, I get fourteen percent? That's pretty high. Of actually. the net, uh, not not the gross sales, the net sales. So, buy my book because I make a <laughs> buck ten every time you buy one. Um, and yes, I do have a band. We used to do a concert every year, whether our public demanded it or not. Um, but we kind of got good. And we do charity events. So if you have a charity, our price is right. Zero dollars. And, uh, yeah, know, we probably raised about three million bucks uh, for good causes. So I'm delighted uh, to be here. And I really mean that. I'm very excited about the opening of the library today. Um, but the, the topic on the table is a big one, and uh, what's happening to democracy, I think, is a a good place to start. So, uh, by the way, we have not discussed what we're going to talk about, so I'm looking forward to hearing what I have to say uh, (laughs) today. Um, I think we have a crisis of legitimacy of our democratic institutions. And this is a problem that exists all across the democratic world. Uh, but Exhibit A and sort of the mothership for this crisis is the United States. And this is reflected in a number of different ways. Um, y- young people are not voting. Many agree with the bumper sticker, don't vote. It only encourages them. And that's kind of funny, except it isn't really, because democracy to me is it's the best Political system that we have it has a lot of flaws. It needs reinvention, but the alternatives are not great Uh, Politicians are beholden to special interests This began with Congress 95% of Americans think there should be background checks for firearm purchases, but Congress Senate House can't pass a law Reflecting the will of 95% of the people so government for the people by the people people of the people this is risible I mean, it just doesn't exist And then we have a president of the United States now the executive office who says that democracy Doesn't work that it's fixed voting is rigged There's fraud everywhere that he actually won the popular vote So millions of fraudulent votes were cast. Um, Now the truth is that in a big recent study they found six fraudulent votes that had been cast in the election. And so the legitimacy of the presidency is in question. Now we have the Supreme Court where for decades, at least half of the American population will not think that that's a legitimate institution. Then there's the... The free press, the foundation of democracy, which according to the executive office and the president, is fake. The New York Times is fake news. My son wrote an article last week for the New York Times. He spent a day doing fact checking and error correcting and editing on that. It was such a a rigorous process to get that right. So. where, where, where is all of this going to go? Well, part of the problem, and I, I mean, I'm going to resist the temptation to spend the whole hour answering this question, but I'll just say one thing. Part of the problem, this is humbling for me to say that, is that new technology is enabling this. Now, I've been the biggest champion of the internet of anybody, probably. I've probably sold more books about the digital age than anybody. Um, But I used to think And I wrote this in a 1994 book Called The Digital Economy That the new media is going to be amazing It's unlike the old media Which was centralized one way One size fits all Controlled by powerful forces Recipients were passive The new media is the antithesis of that It's interactive, it's collaborative People are active It has this Awesome neutrality it will be what we want it to be and surely there are more good people than there are bad people And one of the things I said is I think the internet will bring us together because we'll have access to the truth Now I also said it could go the other way We could end up following our own point of view and our own set of facts And if we did that, we'd be in these little self-reinforcing echo chambers where the purpose of information is probably not to inform us. It's, I don't know, to give us comfort for our preconceived point of view. And there's absolutely been a fragmentation of public discourse in the United States. So the president of the United States can tweet that his predecessor, Barack Obama, wiretapped him, which is not only impossible... It's preposterous,
0: and 30% of the population agrees with that. On, on that note, um, one question I have for you is that people in this debate uh, often focus on the technology and the problems with, say, Facebook or Twitter uh, not filtering things out. Uh, but you've been writing and talking for years about how people need their own bullshit filters uh, long before even social media became a real thing, and particularly that digital natives, people who grew up with the web, tend to have better bs filters than people who didn't and i'm curious to know if you think that there might be a sort of generational divide along technological lines that's partly propelling the fake news phenomenon because there is real fake news out there real propaganda
2: yeah well this whole generational thing i I don't know if any of you know but this is in the mid 1990s i became interested in studying children Uh, Because I noticed how my own kids were effortlessly able to use all this sophisticated technology. And at first I thought, my children are prodigies. (laughs) And um, then I noticed that all their friends were like them, so that was a bad theory. So uh, I started working with 300 kids, and I wrote this book, Growing Up Digital, in 1997. It defined the net generation. I said, there is no generation gap. Like there was when I went to Trent. There are big differences between kids and parents on values, lifestyle, ideology, and so on. That doesn't exist today. Kids and parents get along pretty well. What we have is what I call the generation lap, where kids are lapping their parents on the digital track. And to your point, this is the first time in human history when young people are an authority about something really important. You know, I was an authority on model trains when I was 11. Uh, Today, the 11-year-old at the breakfast table is an authority on this technology that's changing every institution in society. So I wondered what will this do to the way that they think, the way they access information. And overall, I'm kind of... Positive about them sure you go to a restaurant you see the family next door Nobody's talking everybody's looking at their mobile device, but to me that's not a problem of technology. That's a problem of parenting in fact (laughs) I'll take a clap for that one Um, In fact my daughter Nicole who inspired this whole digital native next generation thing has a one-year-old and that kid is not allowed to go anywhere near a screen she can't even be in a room where there's a television on now it's not that she's going to grow up unconnected of course she'll get access but Nikki says you know what a one-year-old needs it doesn't need an interactive game a one-year-old needs a lot of hugs, a lot of kisses, needs to be read to. One-year-old needs to jump up and down and play and dance to music and know what a dog feels like and run around outside and all the rest of that. So that was a very interesting thing. So to the point, I said, well, we eventually, for the sequel to that book, we interviewed or, or surveyed 11,000 young people in 10 countries. And I did come up with this thing that I, I'm i pretty confident that they have good BS detectors because they've grown up with so much BS online that it's – it's and the technology is sort of like the air. So it's they it, it's like if you lived in a world that was full of BS, that every time somebody talked to you, chances are it was BS, uh, then you would start to develop um, – the, the ability to scrutinize, too, and I think that that's so important because how are we going to inform ourselves in a world where the old ways of doing that are collapsing? I guarantee your newspaper is not going to be made of atoms delivered to your doorstep in a decade. They're all going to be gone, and we're, there are all these other ways that we need to inform ourselves. But when you read something online that says vaccinations will cause your baby to, to grow a second head or something, you know, you we, we need to develop uh, ways of scrutinizing information. I think, back to the social contract, every kid starting in kindergarten, every year should have a media literacy class. And every year you develop it, you work on it, you practice, you learn how... how how to detect BS, but also how to manage this
0: torrent of information that we all get. What about um, people who aren't digital natives? How can we educate them? There is no hope. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's interesting. Well, <laughs> I just, when, it, when it comes to things like policy, I was just reminded of um, uh, Orrin Hatch in the United States, who was asking Mark Zuckerberg a question in testimony. And he said, how is it that you can make money with a business where you don't charge people to use it? And Zuckerberg was kind of taken aback and he said, well, Senator, we, we sell ads. Um, yeah. w- if we want to develop policy and a new social contract to deal with the problems that some of the problems that technology is building bringing to us, but the very people who are in charge of us are themselves the one mo- ones most in need of education, what, what can we do?
2: Well, ultimately, we will need um, a generational change. Um, the the problem with that is there are a lot of very urgent issues right now that can't wait. Um, and most people in this room will know where I'm going on this, climate change. So um, I was with a guy, I can tell you who it is, the CEO of Mars. You know the big incubator in Toronto? It's like 2 million square feet. It's the biggest incubator in the world. And um, we were talking about climate change and the role of technology in solving this problem. And he reminded me of this statement, I think originally it came from Bill Clinton, that if we reduce carbon by 80% in the year 2050, not by 6%, by 80%, it'll still take 1,000 years for the planet to cool down. In the meantime, some bad things are going to happen. You can expect a billion to a billion and a half people to lose most of their water supply in the next 15 years. You think we have a problem of migration today? You know, terrorism, tribal conflicts, wars. So, and it doesn't even, it doesn't matter what we do right now. That's going to happen. So, if we leave this until a new generation, your generation takes power, what's that, another 20 years or something, 15 years, I think that we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. So I don't just talk to young people. I mean, I, you know, as a chancellor, I speak at the convocations, and I have several times said that my generation is leaving your generation with a bit of a mess. Sorry about that. And you're going to have to fix this. But... The truth of the matter is that my generation has got a lot of stuff to do now and we have a lot of responsibilities as well, which is why I'm becoming a very small p political uh, person.
0: Yeah, that was something very striking I found in reading your work, you know, from the beginning to the end, preparing for this interview about how um, it was in actually the afterward to the latest edition of Blockchain Revolution that you have this, you just go there and talk about Trump and Brexit and things like that. It was a very sort of interesting turn. Um, on that note, I wanted to ask you, you talked about things that have been done wrong in the past. And in particular, you talked about how uh, the sort of post-World War II social contract was broken. And one of the origins of that breaking was political changes in the early 1980s. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, the, the
2: idea of a social contract uh, goes back a long way. And, you know, to some of the old philosophers, so and so on. I think Hobbes, yep. and, um, and it's, it's kind of like a deal in society. And that's the way we think of it today, between the main pillars, the the three pillars, are the private sector, government, and the, the civil society, uh, which I guess could include unions or what's left of them. And um, when we moved from the agrarian age to the industrial age, over time, it sort of culminated in, in in Bretton Woods after the Second World War. We created a social contract. We figured out a lot of stuff. We figured out people are going to need to be literate. So we created the public education system. Create a law. Have to go to school. It's against the law not to go to school. That wasn't new. Um, We figured people are going to live in the city. They're going to need a social safety net. We need a way of funding that. We're going to have to tax income. Um, we figured out you can't have one oil company owning all the oil. So we created anti-monopoly legislation. In 1934 in the United States, we figured out that if you're going to have a publicly traded company on the stock market, maybe they should tell their shareholders something once a year. Prior to 1934, if you had a public company, you didn't ever have to tell your shareholders anything. So those are four of dozens of decisions. And after the Second World War, we got together, we being the winners, uh, uh, a bunch of companies and we are countries. And we created, and there were some corporations at the table as well. There there wasn't really civil society or NGOs because there weren't any. Unbelievably. In 1946, um the, the civil society was tiny. Now it's I don't know ten percent of uh, of a Western economy like Canada or, or the United States. But we figured out all these things to try and prevent a war from ever happening again. Created the uh, the IMF and, and the World Bank, and then a year later the United Nations, and then the the GAT uh, around trade and the um, the WTO and uh, a whole bunch of other uh, a whole bunch of other things and. Today, we a lot a lot of that is breaking down. So let let me just give you uh, one one example. We can talk about more if you want. But the idea everyone assumes that we achieve prosperity through having a job. Individuals, right? You work, you get paid. It's different than under feudalism and a very you worked and you grew all this stuff. And then you gave it away to the landlord and you got to keep some of it. Kind of like with data today. We all create this data and then Mark Zuckerberg and others expropriate it. We get to keep a few cabbages of data. But uh, we can talk about that if you want. But so the job, I always thought that Schumpeter, you know, anybody here study Schumpeter, creative destruction, that big innovations happen, big technologies, they smash old institutions and industries, and new ones arise. That's what's so great about capitalism. We have a wave of technology about to hit us that I don't think that's going to happen. You combine artificial intelligence, machine learning, where computers Learn to do things that they weren't programmed to do, along with blockchain, a new transactional platform, and you get the Internet of Things, trillions of smart objects all talking to each other and doing transactions. You get autonomous uh, vehicles. You get ro- uh, robots and drones and technology in our bodies and so on. So you put all that together, 48 of 50 states, the number one job type for men is truck driver. I think that's gone, not in a hundred years, in a decade. Number two, uh, or number one job for women is cashier. And it's not just you know blue collar work, it's, it's knowledge work. Computers can diagnose patients better than doctors, and they can analyze x-rays better than radiologists, and they can dispense pharmaceuticals better than druggists, which I'm happy to hear because twice in my life I was almost killed by a pharmacist <laughs> who didn't read the prescription right. So, and my son was very, very sick as a result of the same thing. So I think this is going to disrupt labor markets and we're going to have s- structural unemployment. So what's the new social contract around that? There's lots to be done. Climate change. Poverty. Our economies are growing and prosperity is shrinking. There's wealth being created, and the middle class is getting smaller in most OECD countries. There's lots to be done, but it may not be done through a traditional job in the sense of a private sector company giving you a salary to do something. I think we'll need something new.
0: And, yeah, specifically you're a supporter of a universal basic income, I believe.
2: Well, I am, but to me that's sort of the the beginning. You just, you know, we're wealthy as a country – and many of these societies just can't let people starve to death or, or you know, be homeless or, or have illnesses that are not treated. But I kind of like the idea of upping the ante on that one to say, no, everyone has a guaranteed job. Won't necessarily come from companies, but there's lots to be done. So we're going to have other vehicles for funding jobs, civil society, philanthropy and government. Um, I think that what we put in the comments is going to grow. Now, you can call that socialism or whatever you want. Um, throwing names on things to to, to make them uh, pejorative is not helpful for me. I just want to talk about the idea. What are we going to do? Who's got a better solution? Now, the trouble is that you contrast that with, with what's happening today, which this sort of... Um, uh, survival of the fittest. I almost said Darwinian, but Darwin was a great guy. Um, <clears throat> the survival of, of the fittest sort of uh, mentality that's happening, that the best, it started with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, and now it's typified by Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and so on, that, you know, it's all about the individual. and It's all about Indi- individuals uh, taking action. It's a, This debate with Steve Bannon, I didn't go to it, but I did read about it in the newspaper. It's all about people are sick of elites. How ironic is that? You know, Congress can't pass a law reflecting the will of 95% of the population because of these powerful moneyed interests that control it. And Donald Trump, I don't know, is he like the little guy or would you put him in an elite category so setting aside the irony of that particular point of view um i think we're we're going to need a new social contract
0: and um another aspect of the new social contract in addition to perhaps something like a universal basic income uh, that you propose is a portable safety net i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that i think it comes from uh you know some of the issues that come from you know gig economy style of work where you might be doing a little bit over here and a little bit over there and not Mm -hmm. be a formal employee at all, even though you're working all the time.
2: Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that. So we're going to have to uh, strengthen the social safety net. Now, The idea of portability is sort of interesting. And it starts with our identity. So right now, uh, the virtual Sherry, there's a mirror image of Sherry online, all this data. And the virtual Sherry knows more about her than she does <laughs> in a whole bunch of ways. Because she can't remember what she bought a year ago or said a year ago or her exact location a year ago or what her heartbeat was a year ago or, you know, what she got on a, a test uh, a year ago or what medication she took a year ago or what her diagnosis. You, know, you know what I'm saying. The trouble is the virtual Sherry, excuse me, is not owned by her. It's owned by Facebook and Google and big banks and – Governments in a lot of countries, governments, big time, are collecting this data. The social score in China, you know, you don't pay your parking ticket, you go on a demonstration, your kid's not going to get into a good school.
0: Yeah, I don't know if everyone here has maybe heard of what Don's Mm -hmm. talking about, but China is actually constructing a system nationwide where you're being watched all the time, literally by facial recognition and things like that but your activity is being tracked in other ways, like if you committed various kinds of infractions, not not even necessarily of the law, but just of like the rules, like if you light up in the airplane or something mm-hmm. like that. And they're thinking of establishing a score. And then that score will essentially be uh, known by people and your treatment by other people in society will be determined in part by that score. So Orwell, he had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> This is so...
2: Much better than Orwell could ever come up with. So, so there's all this all this data. Now, this data constitutes the new asset class of the digital age. It's the new oil, if you like. Maybe the biggest asset class ever, and it's what's behind the bifurcation of wealth. Um, so, and Sherry is sort of a a digital search. She, she this is feudalism. We're a Trent. We know about history. Remember, under feudalism, you were tied to the land. And Sherry's tied to all this technology. And she creates the data. She grows the vegetables, but they get expropriated by the digital landlord, and she gets a few cabbages. So, what if? uh, Well, that's a big problem because she can't use the data to plan her life or health or anything else. She can't monetize the data, other people getting rich from the data that she creates. And the biggest problem to me is that her privacy is being undermined. And, you know, people say, Don, privacy's dead. Get over it. If you have nothing to hide, what's your problem? This is absurd. Privacy is the foundation of freedom, as that social score example shows. And... All this data constitutes our identities We need to get our identities back So that we can manage them responsibly And use this data to help us Conduct our own lives So um, imagine if our data was portable and it's in a black box and it moves around with Sherry and it's sweeping up all this transactional stuff, exhaust that she leaves behind and, and it's, you know, measuring her heartbeat and it's capturing all, all this other stuff. That would be a very, very powerful thing. The idea of sovereign, uh, a sovereign identity owned by the citizen, not owned by big companies and governments.
0: Yeah, it's a really fascinating idea. It's literal self-possession. Uh, yeah. that you should that yourself is partially uh, incarnated in the data about you and that, that that data is in a sense you and what what you argue is that this this is an asset and it's something that belongs to the person themselves and has been taken away before we even had it in the first place uh, how would how would this work if one were to have this kind of digital black box of one's own data that one possessed and then one could sell access to to companies that wanted access to it.
2: Okay, well this is where blockchain uh, comes in. And um, the, the way that I think about blockchain, it's not, you know, this is the underlying technology of cryptocurrencies like, uh, like Bitcoin. It's not about Bitcoin. or There are now a couple of thousand of these blockchains. Um, it's the technology that enables us to manage value, peer to peer. So, and let me just do a quick aside on this. So, for the last 40 years, and I've been at this the whole time, uh, we've had the Internet of Information. That's what the Internet's about, right? Information. But if I send you some information, a PDF, a a PowerPoint, if we send an MP3 of this podcast or whatever, you're actually not getting the information, you're getting a copy. Uh, Even with a website, I keep the original. And that works great for information, but when it comes to assets, Things like our identities, uh, intellectual property, money, security, stocks, bonds, contracts, deeds, loyalty points, cultural assets like art and music. Vote. A vote is an asset, something of value that belongs to somebody. When it comes to those things, sending a copy is a terrible idea. You don't want someone copying your vote or your identity. And if I send you a $1,000, it's really important that I don't still have the money, right? So cryptographers have called this the double spend problem for a long time. And the way that we manage that is through big intermediaries, like all these people that are capturing our data. <laughs> now, it was originally banks and credit card companies and governments, but now we have and stock exchanges, but now we have uh, social media companies and big technology companies, and they perform all of the business and transaction logic for every type of commerce. They identify you are who you are. They identify the asset. That's a dollar. That's a stock. They clear and settle the transactions, and they keep records. And there are growing problems with these intermediaries. They exclude a couple of billion people from the global economy. They capture our data. And that's a big problem. They slow things down. Why does it take seven days for money to go from from a, a Filipino housekeeper in Toronto to her mom in Manila? And why is she charged 10 to 20% for that by Western Union? How much do you get charged for inter or, 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 or cross-country emails, right? <laughs> Anyone heard of... Cor- of global email fees, you know, you're gonna send an email to another country, we're, we're gonna charge 20% for that. So this is a big problem. So enter this new thing, blockchain, and when, the way I like to think of it is it's a internet of value. Where anything of value from money to stocks to our identities can be managed, stored, transacted on this platform in a secure fully encrypted private way and where trust is not achieved by a bank or Facebook or a government, it's achieved by cryptography and collaboration and some clever code. So we're on your mobile device then or any other device that you're on you have your identity and that identity uh, is unhackable. The only And and the the way the whole system works is that reckless behavior only hurts the individual behaving recklessly. It doesn't hurt everybody. Today, reckless behavior, if someone hacks into the Facebook server, or if somebody in Facebook makes a big coding error or something like that, then all of a sudden tens of millions of, of people's private information is released. That can happen on a blockchain. Uh, the way I like to think of it is a blockchain is a highly processed thing. It's sort of the analogy I came up with was that it's sort of like a chicken McNugget. And to to hack a blockchain would be like taking a chicken McNugget and turning it back into a chicken. Now, someday someone will be able to do that, but for now, that's going to be tough.
0: I can't, now, I can't, I can't help but interrupt for a moment <laughs> and say John Oliver actually featured that metaphor uh, on his show. It's hilarious. And Don Don shows it in his talks now, the, the clip.
2: Yeah, John Oliver, <laughs> you know, late night, or last week tonight, he had a lot of fun with that, which is why I only use that metaphor with friends. <laughs> now he says, hold it. That's a terrifying idea. If that, if that chicken McNugget was turned back into a chicken, that chicken would be bleeped. Up! <laughs> that chicken would have PSTD and it would be out on the speaker circuit talking about the things it saw. <laughs> you know, my body is whole, but what of my soul? Bacaw, bacaw. <laughs> um,
0: anyway, you have to watch yeah. it, Busty. Uh, to what you were speaking about, um, actually, the, the example of the um, uh, housekeeper in Toronto having so much trouble sending payments, not only in cost in uh. money, but in time. I believe part of the story yeah. is that she would have to travel for hours to get to the right Western Union to send this money. And then it, would, it was uncertain how long it would take, you know, five to seven days to get to her mother. And then her mother would have to travel to the Western Union right. to get the money. Uh, but there actually is currently a blockchain-based solution that she actually uses in order yeah. to get money to her mother in a very interesting and quick way.
2: Yeah, now she takes her mobile and she goes, $300, mom. And the money arrives instantly on her mom's mobile. And then her mom looks at the mobile and there she sees cars driving around in Manila. And there's a they're tellers. It's kinda like Uber. And there's a five star teller. He's seven minutes away. She goes boom. Seven minutes later this guy knocks on her door, gives her the money in Filipino pesos, she sticks it in her pocket. The whole thing didn't cost twelve percent, it cost one point five percent, and it didn't take seven days, it took seven minutes so Western Union is toast (laughs) and as far as I'm concerned all these companies that do foreign exchange are in deep trouble and that's a good thing because they've just you know this is the global diaspora people who have left their ancestral lands and they send money back home this is upwards of a trillion dollars these people have been getting ripped off so I don't want to be too gloomy about all of this. There are all kinds of really exciting solutions to many of these vexing problems that uh, that face us today. But we need to think differently to make them happen.
0: Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was, you, you, you mentioned it earlier, but was uh, the advent of driverless trucks. Um, but uh, there, obviously, along with that will probably come driverless cars as well. Uh, do you think this is going to have an impact on the uh, popularity of personal car ownership? Are people going to not own cars anymore because companies just own fleets and people just kind of hail rides and basically rent?
2: A lot of uh, who's who here is under the age of thirty. Okay. <laughs> okay, who owns a car? No, under the sorry, under the age of thirty. <laughs> <laughs> Under the age of thirty, who owns a car? What's that? It's like 5%? five percent or six. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, young people already are not buying cars. But um, I think that the, the transportation will become a service rather than a, a thing. And you know, I've been saying this for a long, long time, and people say, "Come on, how about the hot rod?" And we all love our car, and it's like, yeah. Why don't we all go back to happy days and the fawns or something like that, you know? <laughs> um, and, and again, but this is something we don't think about. Like, subways are a billion five a mile. And I like subways. as Well, as the next person, I'm a big believer in public transportation. But all we need to do is smarten up our roads at $1,000 a mile. And you can have a virtual mass transit system where all of these things are moving along autonomously a few feet from each other. There's no slowdown because of traffic, because they're autonomous. There are no accidents. And there's no traffic congestion. Um, And think about the implications of that. Half of the budget of the Toronto Police is traffic. What happens if you free that up? What could you do in Toronto to build a better city or to deal with homeless people or mental health or you know, have better housing or, or whatever else? So we, we look at these old ways of solving problems in society. We don't see how the possibilities enabled by new technology, new forms of social organization could enable radical changes. Now, there, there are problems potential problems with that. but
0: Yeah, there's a really, uh, thanks for that uh, great explanation. There's a really interesting, you, you sort of touched on a really interesting paradox about massive change, which is, for example, you said, you know, there there will be fewer accidents. Um, over a million people, people might not know this, but over a million people die in automotive accidents every year around the world, and 20 to 40 million are injured. Um, wouldn't Wouldn't it seem straightforward that we would all do anything we could? If this was SARS or something like that, we would be doing everything we could to solve that problem, but what happens if we if we move to driverless vehicles? The three the thirty mil, three what is it three million truckers in America lose their jobs. But like I'm just going to paint the darkest yeah. scenario: um, every automotive section in every home hardware goes away, and all the companies and all the people that work for them that provide those parts are gone. Um, and and that police department loses half its budget. Uh, and I just that's one of the reasons I like this example so much because the benefits are just so stark and obvious. But when yeah. you start to think about the costs, that's when even, even people who are immediately convinced start to walk back in yeah. their minds because it is it's a genuine paradox,
2: yeah. and we could decide, no, we're not going to do this totally rational thing because it will cause job loss. But I think ultimately, that's not going to be a viable way of proceeding, because the the math is just too high. Why not free up? all of that resources, save all those people's lives, radically reduce the cost of transportation, and figure out a new social contract whereby all those people can be redeployed. Now, those truck drivers are not going to become Trent professors, okay? Most of them, some of them might, but but there are things that they could do Those things may not be provided by current labor markets, which is why we're going to need a new social contract to figure out what they could do. Oh, another interesting thing on that. What happens when an autonomous vehicle kills somebody? One person. Okay? (laughs) Tens of millions die, but it kills one person. That's going to be the headline, isn't it? Well, it already has been. The Uber... I don't think the Uber vehicle, it's it's driven millions of miles. The only accident it ever had was when it was rear-ended from behind by a human. (laughs) But there was a case of another one that made a bad choice, and I own a Tesla. I don't let that thing go by itself. Um, I, I put it on autopilot, and it's safer than I am on a highway, but if there's anything odd... You know, like after turn or something, it requires (laughs) me to make it happen. But, um, again, do do we have the kind of wisdom in our systems of public discourse to be able to rationally consider that that one death is far outweighed by all of the benefits of moving to some new platform like this? Then there are a million other issues, you know, Who's who's liable for that death? What happens if a car's got a choice to make? Um, it's going to run into a bunch of school kids at a bus stop, or it's going to save uh, it's going to s- save you, uh, or, or it's going to kill you because the only other thing is to head into a pole in the other direction. So the, the all of these problems, of peop- and everywhere I go, people say, "Yeah, what about this and what about that and so on." And what I like to do is, I say, "Let's take this problem, and we're going to put it in one of two boxes. Box number one: reason why this is a really bad idea and it's not going to work, and we shouldn't do it. Versus box number two: implementation challenges. Right. And all of the all of the stuff that people constantly say to me about." why these ideas might not make sense. Go on box number two. So far.
0: Um, my last question before we, we go to the audience to ask some questions. We've got about 13 minutes left. Um, my last question is a bit of a selfish one, but one I've been very much looking forward to asking you. Um, you've been writing about uh, digital technology and computing since the, since the early days of personal computing. I think you wrote a book or published a report in the early 80s talking about how you know, personal computing was going to become a real thing. Uh, not everybody believed you at the time. Um, but the, the the reason I want to ask you, you touched on something earlier about how if, if a driverless car gets in an, in an accident, people freak out. Um, and they'll say things like, you know, people when you ask them about, would you ever get into a driverless car? They'll say, no, I wouldn't trust it. But you trust the stranger that you get into the taxi with. You trust the, you know, uh, angry, you know, I'll say like you know 43 year old person who you know is a little bit drunk because they had a bad night you trust them you don't know you don't know who's in that car you don't know who's coming yeah. at you but somehow if there's a computer involved people get concerned in in a specific mm. way and it's not just in driving its all sorts of things like with ebooks the world that I inhabit there are people who say I want a, I want a real book we even use the term virtual to refer to what happens on computers but of course it's not virtual it's not spiritual it's not ghosts it's real But there's something about computers, which I think Mm -hmm. is related to the invisibility of the work being done. You know, with a conventional car, you can hear it. You can open it up, you can put the gas in. And I just wanted on that broad, what what is it about computing that is so kind of um, uncanny to some people?
2: Um, Well, the first thing, yeah, I mean, in the 1970s, I was at Bell Northern Research. I'm really dating myself here. And uh, we were studying how multi-function workstations connected to a vast network of networks based on a thing called the ARPANET would change the nature of work and the design of organizations. And I wrote a book in 1982 saying computers are not just about data processing. They're going to become a communications tool, and everyone will use one. And for close to a decade, everybody said, that's garbage. And not everybody, but I'd go around and people just like, And I don't think anyone in this room would guess the reason why that was a dumb idea, why my idea was a dumb idea, the thing that people said to me, why this will never work. Regular people will never learn to type. (laughs) The stigma around being on a keyboard, it would be like going to the moon for a regular manager to think about how to use a keyboard. And if you sat down at a keyboard in an office, people make fun of you. Hey, Bob, your secretary sick today? Yeah. You know, so.
0: No, no, it's a very real thing to this (laughs) day.
2: Anyway. But the thing about the fear of technology, again, young people don't have a kind of fear because it's not there. Technology's not there. It's like the air. They've grown up, you know, bathed in bits. But... Um, There is a real legitimate concern here about technology, and I'll I'll just give you a couple of examples about what's actually going on inside the computer. So you think about Facebook and what goes on behind the scenes when you post something. If I take this phone, we're in the physical world now. I'm holding a phone. If I let go of it, what's going to happen to it? Is it going to go up? It's going to break. Yeah. <laughs> Is it going to go sideways? Is it going to go? No, it's going to go down. That's because there's a law and that has an algorithm called gravity. You go onto Facebook and you post something, what happens to it? You know, I often notice that I post something with a URL that takes people to another site. Nobody likes it. Maybe there's an algorithm that says we want to keep people on Facebook. Um, you know I'm sure all of you have had the experience you go online and you're looking for a cappuccino machine on Amazon and all of a sudden there's an ad for a cappuccino machine on Facebook so those would be two of a million examples of in the digital world all of the, the rules and the algorithms that govern our human interaction with other humans are unknown to us and that's a problem um to me. Now, a second set of problems has to do with artificial intelligence. That we create software that does things that it wasn't programmed to do. It's called machine learning. The software can learn. It can adapt itself and it can develop new programs and new capabilities and so on. Harnessed correctly? Wow, what a force for good. Solving big problems in medicine climate and you name it, but there is a point Where not just bad actors might get involved? You know you create some kind of autonomous agent on a blockchain It's flying around and and you create you create it to do bad things You've essentially created a virus with a bank account And ultimately that thing could go hiring people to do bad things like really bad things so there's um, after the second TED talk that I <laughs> give, they had Kevin Kelly, who, founder of WIRE, got up and gave a real upbeat thing about AI. And then they had a guy give a doomsday kind of thing about AI. And they were both very interesting. And the doomsday uh, speaker, I, I'm sorry, I forget his name, but he's well-known. And he said, you know, we're humans, and we're way more powerful than ants. Well, computers are going to become way smarter and more powerful than humans. and they're, But you don't go around just looking for ants to kill. But if ants become a big problem, if you become infested by ants, then you're going to, as a human, you got this capability to just wipe them out. Well, supposing that we create these really super powerful technologies and they decide that we're a problem. And we're just ants to them. And they're acting in their own self-interest and arguably abiding by the the, the terms of their original formation, which was created by by humans. So now that's just a kind of extreme example, and it's not going to be a problem in my life, I don't think, but it might be in the the non-car owners who put up their hands here.
0: Uh, yeah, um on that note, I cheery like that, <laughs> that was, we, a cheerio, that was yeah. a note. Uh, actually no I should, I should I should say that actually one of the very interesting things that Don speculates about is the possibility of owner ownerless businesses um, that through AI and things like blockchain technology with things like smart contracts where there's a little code that kind of has rules um, that are carried out when it say receives some money or when it spends some money, you may end up with autonomous organizations that actually have funds that they can just make decisions to do things with. Well,
2: in fact, one of those existed. But when we were writing Blockchain Revolution, we said, gee, using all this technology, could you have a company with no people? It'd be a bunch of distributed applications on a blockchain using smart contracts, just like what it sounds like, contract that self-executes, and autonomous agents, little bits of AI that are learning. And we almost didn't publish it because we thought, "Ah, people think this is too you know, futuristic. Fine line between vision and hallucination. So, um, but we call it the Decentralized Autonomous Enterprise. And we went ahead and we published it. A week after the book came out, an organization was launched called the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It had no CEO, no management, no people. It was a venture capital company and its job was to go raise money and invest the money. In three weeks, this Entity with no people raised one hundred and sixty four million u.s. Dollars Now it's not a happy ending because there was a programming error in the smart contract And the the creators of this thing decided to give money back Before this error ended up being a really big problem, but the fact that this could
0: exist
2: You know Bob Dylan <laughs> there's something going on here, and you don't know
0: what it is Yeah yeah, and it's uh, it's a, I guess I guess in a way like human error is a, a kind of an optimistic thing sometimes <laughs> in a way That's funny. Uh, that that our own our own our own uh, failings will be reflected in the things that we deal with and that this, this has it's it's a bit of a check and a balance in its own way even though it can have negative consequences. Um, we do have time for a couple of questions, so if anyone wants to raise their hand in the back, yes, I can hear you. I'll just repeat your question if I can. Yeah, that was a great, great question. Uh, And and, in some, uh, what role is there for humans in in the future where there may be uh, autonomous organizations and machines making all these decisions and even carrying out actions? Well,
2: this is why I like the idea of everybody gets a job because to me, I'm old school on this. I think you get real satisfaction in life from work, from being productive, making a contribution. And right now we define work as getting a job largely funded by a company, where you get wages for that job and you do something. I'm not sure most jobs give you a full sense of purpose and value, but at least you're making money. Um, I think that in the new environment, there's a lot to be done, but we're going to have to reconfigure all of that. And I don't think there is a post-human world. Uh, To me, humans are uh, what matters. Now, animals... And our biosphere and all the rest of that matter, too. But they matter because they help us have an existence and have a good life. And, uh, you know, I'm not really super negative about this. It, 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 I'm, we focus on the problems today, but I think there are real solutions uh, to many of these problems. I'll tell you one thing. In the future, little companies are going to be able to have the capability of big companies without all the main liabilities legacy culture and bureaucracy and systems and so on and if we do this right there should be a halcyon age of entrepreneurship we can bring two billion people into the global economy overnight with blockchain if if we want to do that 70 percent of the land titles in the world in the developing world are not valid you're in honduras a dictator comes to power he says You may have a piece of paper that says you own your farm, but our central government computer says my friend owned your farm. This happened on a mass scale. You put land titles on a blockchain. They're public. Nobody can mess with it unless you can turn a chicken McNugget into a chicken. (laughs) Oops.
0: On that (laughs) that optimistic note, I think our time is just about up. Uh, But I wanted to, uh, before thanking Don, I wanted to uh, read something that he's written and he's said uh, a few times. The future is not something to be predicted. The future is something to be achieved. And I think that we should, in that spirit, take everything we've maybe learned about or we've discussed today as an opportunity to improve the world and to uh, particularly address the crisis of legitimacy that we're all experiencing and, you know, we'll all be learning more about uh, what happened in the last hour when we all go on our phones in about two minutes. So thank you very much, Don, uh, for coming here and taking us out. Thank you. Okay, thanks everyone for listening to this special episode of the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. You can find a full transcription of this interview online at leanpub.com slash podcasts slash frontmatter, including helpful links to some of Don's talks and various other resources. If you like what you heard, please go into iTunes or wherever you found this podcast and leave a rating and subscribe if you haven't already. As everyone who listens to podcasts knows from listening to their hosts, it really does help. On a final note, I'd like to thank Professor Stephen Brown, Sarah Gallen, Don White, and everyone else at Trent University who put in so much effort to make this event a success. Thanks again for listening.